Just in case, just in case, comes now the undersigned and hear my request with all due respect. From the honorable, his honor, her honor, your honor, do you want to pursue? Hello and welcome to the April 17, 2017 edition of Just In Case, the podcast of criminal law cases just in from the Supreme Court of the United States, the Tenth Circuit, and the Kansas Appellate Courts. I'm Paige Nichols, and this podcast is brought to you by Monnet and Spurrier Chartered on the first and third Mondays of every month. Today I'll be talking about published cases of interest decided on or after April 3, 2017, starting with the United States Supreme Court. Dean v. United States is a federal sentencing case. Mr. Dean was convicted of a conspiracy to commit robbery, two robberies, one count of possessing a firearm as a felon, and two counts of using or carrying a firearm during a crime of violence under 18 U.S.C. 924-C. For those of you who don't know, 924-C is a very tough-on-gun crimes statute. It calls for a mandatory sentence that is separate from and consecutive to any sentence on the predicate felonies. In this case, because there were multiple 924-C counts, that meant that Mr. Dean was facing a 30-year mandatory minimum sentence to be served after and in addition to any sentence he received for his other counts of conviction. The question in Dean was this, can the district court say, look, 30 years is enough prison time for this defendant, and grant a downward variance from the guideline sentences on the other counts to as little as one day to make up for the harsh sentence on the 924C count. Yes, the district court can do that. The Supreme Court said in Dean, sentencing courts may consider the harsh nature of a 924C mandatory minimum sentence when deciding what sentence is appropriate for the predicate offense. The court points out that as a general matter, federal sentencing statutes permit a court imposing a sentence on one count to consider sentences imposed on other counts, and nothing in the text of 924C restricts a court's general sentencing authority in this regard. So, Dean versus United States is a case to know when it comes to federal sentencing packages, but it's also a case to know when it comes to statutory interpretation. And that's because the government wanted the court to read a limitation into the statute, into 924C, that just isn't there. The court, once again, here insists on a close textual reading, and the government loses. By the way, Dean probably won't change much federal sentencing practice in Kansas, because the Tenth Circuit held pretty much the same thing the Supreme Court held here back in 2014 in a case called United States v. Smith. And speaking of the Tenth Circuit, we have several published criminal law cases from that court this week. In United States v. Creighton, the Tenth Circuit rejected Mr. Creighton's argument that his mandatory life sentence for drug trafficking resulted from unconstitutional prosecutorial vindictiveness. The government initially charged Mr. Creighton with a single count of drug conspiracy. He had multiple prior drug convictions, and so he was eligible for a sentencing enhancement to life in prison if the government filed the required notice under 21 U.S.C. 851. But the government did not originally file that notice. Instead, the government invited Mr. Creighton to cooperate and said, you have until this date to tell me you're going to talk. If you don't talk, I'm going to file that 851 notice, and you're going to be facing that mandatory life sentence. 
Mr. Creighton didn't talk, and he got that mandatory life sentence. On appeal, the Tenth Circuit says, sorry, this is out of our hands. The Supreme Court told us nearly 40 years ago in Borden-Kircher v. Hayes that this kind of dealing by the prosecutor is constitutional. Borden-Kircher held that it's constitutional for a state prosecutor to carry out a threat made during plea negotiations to reindict the accused on more serious charges if the accused does not plead guilty to the offense with which he was originally charged. The bottom line is this, if the prosecutor could have brought the charges or filed that 851 notice in the first place, then she can hold the threat of an enhanced charge or enhanced sentencing over the defendant during plea negotiations. As the Tenth Circuit put it, quoting Bordenkircher, in the give and take of plea bargaining, there is no element of punishment or retaliation so long as the accused is free to accept or reject the prosecution's offer. After all, the prosecution and defense arguably possess relatively equal bargaining power. Relatively equal bargaining power. Really? Well, it's true. The United States Supreme Court did declare that in Bordenkircher in the majority opinion by Justice Stewart. Was this some view pressed upon them by the prosecutor, say, at oral argument? Well, let's take a look and see. Here's Robert Chenoweth, then Assistant Attorney General for Kentucky, arguing the case for the state and answering a question by Justice Stewart. And secondly, that the very concept of plea bargaining, like the very concept of any bargaining, involves the use of leverage or, if you will, of pressure very much on both so. sides. Very much so, except that the pros- prosecutor probably has an unequal amount of power in that, uh, in that pr- at that stage. He really has more probably at his disposal than a defendant because a defendant basically only has this. He has the Fifth Amendment and the Sixth Amendment, and well, he'll either assume. exercise those or not. Okay, so Justice Stewart didn't get that equal bargaining power idea from the state. And so, let's ask again, where did that idea come from? Believe it or not, it came from Justice Brennan in his 1970 dissent in Parker v. North Carolina. In Parker, the majority held that a 15-year-old boy's guilty plea to a burglary was not coerced just because he was charged under a statute that mandated the death penalty if he went to trial and lost, but only mandated a life sentence if he pled guilty. In his dissent from the majority's approval of this plea, Justice Brennan was trying to make the point that the legislative imposition of a more severe penalty, if a defendant asserts his right to trial, is very different from, and here it is, the give-and-take negotiation common in plea bargaining between the prosecution and defense, which arguably possesses relatively equal bargaining power. I think I understand Brennan's point. There might theoretically be equal bargaining power between two parties, but a party can never have equal or really any bargaining power with a statute. But I still say he missed the mark here by a long shot, and it's too bad that this idea of equal bargaining power has become so entrenched in our case law. Okay, moving on. United States versus Los Dada and United States versus Roosevelt Dada, and that's D-A-H-D-A, are a pair of appeals by two brothers from convictions for their part in a large drug conspiracy. 
The cases were decided separately, but they've got several issues in common, including claims that the evidence of the conspiracy was insufficient, that there was a fatal variance between the large charged conspiracy and the several smaller conspiracies proved at trial, a wiretap suppression claim, and various sentencing claims. The court rejected the sufficiency, variance, and wiretap suppression claims for both defendants. I do want to tell you a little bit more about that wiretap claim, though. Here, the district court issued nine wiretap orders that authorized the use of listening posts that were outside of the district court's territorial jurisdiction. The orders, in fact, didn't have any geographic restrictions on either the cell phones or the listening posts. The Tenth Circuit agreed that these orders violated the wiretap statutes. But wait, Page, you're probably asking, didn't you just tell us that the Tenth Circuit rejected the Dada's wiretap suppression claims? Yes, I did, and here's why. Defects in wiretap orders don't always lead to suppression. In Los Dada, the Tenth Circuit held that suppression is not required for the district court's authorization of wiretaps that are beyond the court's territorial jurisdiction. No right to suppression and therefore no error in admitting the fruits of these illegal wiretaps. And so the Dada's convictions are sustained, but they each won a different sentencing issue. The district court had imposed a a fine in Los Dada's case of over $16 million. The government agreed, as did the Tenth Circuit, that this fine exceeded the statutory maximum, which, when added up for Los Dada's various convictions, capped his maximum fine at only $13,750,000. So he'll get a couple of million knocked off of his fine. Assuming that this large sum of money actually exists somewhere, well, that's quite a savings. As for Roosevelt Dada, he argued on appeal that the district court's finding that he was responsible for 1,600 pounds of marijuana was not supported by the evidence. This finding was based on testimony about the weight of 20 shipped pallets of marijuana over an unnamed period of time. The government's witnesses testified that the pallets contained anywhere from 5 to 80 pounds each. One witness said they usually contained 80 pounds, and and they might have even contained more. Well, the judge took this testimony to mean that the pallets contained an average of 80 pounds, and the judge calculated the total weight attributable to Roosevelt Dada on that assumption. But that was just bad math, and it wasn't supported by this vague testimony. And so it's back to the district court for Roosevelt Dada to get a new quantity assessment. United States v. Alcorta is another drug conspiracy case. Here, the Tenth Circuit affirmed Mr. Alcorta's conviction, rejecting his claims challenging the sufficiency of the evidence and the admission of recorded jailhouse conversations of co-conspirators. In United States v. Tice, that's T-H-E-I-S, Mr. Tice was convicted of attempted sexual exploitation of a child for using hidden cell phones to secretly record his girlfriend's 11-year-old daughter while she was in the bathroom. The statute under which he was charged covers any person who employs, uses, persuades, induces, entices, or coerces any minor to engage in any sexually explicit conduct for the purpose of producing any visual depiction of such conduct. Mr. Tice argued that mere voyeurism was not enough to satisfy this statute. He argued that in order to use a minor 
to engage in sexually explicit conduct, there has to be some direct causal interaction between the defendant and the victim. And here, the victim was not even aware she was being recorded. No such relationship is required, says the Tenth Circuit. The use element is met when a defendant intentionally films or photographs a minor's sexually explicit conduct. And that's the news from Denver. Which means it's time to ride on over to that little courthouse on the prairie and see what adventures await us at the Kansas Appellate Courts. In State v. Tolliver, the state charged Mr. Tolliver with, among other crimes, felony battery against a law enforcement officer under KSA 21-5413, subsection C3D. That subsection protects city and county correctional officers and employees from batteries. But the officer who was the victim of this count was a detective in the county police department. He was not a correctional officer, and he was not a correctional employee. But the state argued the statute protects county employees generally because it prohibits batteries against, quote, a city or county correctional officer or employee. The state argued that employee, as used here, was not modified by the word correctional. The Kansas Supreme Court disagreed, citing the widely accepted grammar rule that when there is a straightforward parallel construction that involves all nouns or verbs in a series, a prepositive or postpositive modifier normally applies to the entire series. The court also pointed out the Kansas legislature's frequent use of the phrase officer or employee as a single unit to be modified by a preceding adjective. This use appears over 700 times in over 300 Kansas statutes. And finally, the court points out that really there's no indication in this statute that the usual rule of interpretation should not apply. Again, that's State v. Tolliver. In State v. Allison, the Kansas Supreme Court held that neither the instructions nor the verdict form in Mr. Allison's sentencing proceeding rendered his hard 40 sentence illegal. In State v. Cotton, the Kansas Supreme Court reminds us that a motion to correct an illegal sentence is not the right vehicle for raising trial errors. And finally, in State v. Cooper, the court holds that under the statute governing appeals from departure sentences, there's no jurisdiction for the appellate courts to hear an appeal from a departure sentence that resulted from an agreement between the state and the defendant and that the sentencing court approved on the record. And that is it for today. Thanks to Oyez for the Supreme Court sound clip. Oyez is a multimedia Supreme Court archive at the IIT Chicago-Kent College of Law. You can visit Oyez at oyez.org. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Just In Case. Have you got something to say? Email me at justincasepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Paige Nichols, and I'll be back again in two weeks. Oye, 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 wherefore, whereby, we're ready to wear. Res judicata, give me pizza cutter, just in case.